Well, good evening. My name is Ben Milner, and we're going through the book of Isaiah um, this fall. And as you can tell from this passage, the, um, the church in Isaiah's day, Israel, which we call the church of the Old Testament, or you can call the church the Israel of the New Testament, the, the church had an enormous amount of uh, deception. There was an enormous amount of lying. There was a lack of truth. And, um, of course, that still is true of us today. And this is one of the reasons that people lose their faith and leave the church. Um, just thinking through a few examples, uh, a pastor uses uh, you know, his, his tax-exempt status to buy a $2 million house and then begins to hide uh, that kind of thing from people in his church. Or a, a Christian author plagiarizes long sections of his book, and then when he's caught, he denies that he did it. Um, a bishop uh, protects priests who are abusing children and denies it for a long time. Um, a healer uh, promises a child that their parent won't die, and then they do die, and they say nothing more about it. Or a church plants people in a congregation to, uh, to fake a conversion or something like that at, at an altar call. They actually plant people who will come forward who really believe already, and then they pretend to to be converted so that others will come forward. I mean, these are things that the church does. And uh, it, it could also just be the run-of-the-mill um, self-righteousness and lying of your average uh, evangelical Christian in America today, you know, who is um, very condemning uh, of the sexual promiscuity of the world out there and then completely ignores the, the greed um, and, and the um, self-righteousness and the spiritual pride that is uh, inside of the church. So um, just as in Isaiah's day, um, these things are with us today. And like I said, they, they cause um, people to doubt the God of the Bible. How could there be such a, a being as that when um, these people that claim his name are like this? But one thing that I love about the Bible is that the Bible sees this and it names it. Um, it doesn't pull any punches. It's, in fact, the only book that I've ever read, including Christian writers, that does not pull any punches and just continues to hammer home the truth uh, against um, anyone who denies it, even against its own people. Things like verse 3, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. I mean, these are God's own people um, saying these things about themselves through the prophet Isaiah. They conceive mischief. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Verse 4, verse 6. They make their road crooked. Verse 8. And of course, on and on and on. And the Bible um, doesn't just see this kind of thing, but the community that is, that is um, the author of Scripture, you know, the community of Israel, the community of the church, uh, not only does it see it, but it owns it as, it, as ours that it is ours. And so Isaiah says, we grope. Uh, in verses 9 to 15, this is the confession where he includes himself. We stumble. He's including himself. We are like dead men. We growl. We moan. And so it's, um, it's not just them, 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 them out there. It's, it's, this is me. This is us. This is the church. And I think it's really good news that really good news that God hates lies and he hates hypocrisy and he lets it be known and it's way, way more than we hate it. His, his repulsion uh, and his um, uh, just disdain for this kind of thing goes way beyond us. 
In a great understatement, Isaiah says in verse 15, the Lord saw it and it displeased him. And not only does the Lord see it, but he graciously allows us to see it. And that's one of the great benefits of being a part of a church. And one of the great problems with not being a part of the church is that when you're in a church, you're in a community of people that sh- that's like having eyes in the back of your head or another set of eyes on you where they show you things about you. If you're, if you're willing to listen, they will show you things uh, about yourself. Uh, verse 21, the, the, the promise here, the good news of this passage is that God is going to make a new covenant with his people. And in that covenant, in verse 21, my spirit will be put upon you and my words uh, I will put in your mouth. So my words of truth, I'm going to, be, to force you to speak the truth about what's really going on out there. So I want to look at two things. Number one is the fact that the people of God still lie. We all lie. Not just the people of God, but, but the people of God as well. Um, the church. And then number two is that God brings this invasion. He uses uh, warlike imagery. Uh, he, he brings this invasion of, uh, of truth and light and, and repentance, creating repentance in his people. And that's what, that's what his new covenant community is. It's a people where there's light and there's repentance and the truth is, is uncovered. So first of all, um, our lies. You know, one thing, if you looked at this passage, you might think that it's mostly about violence and oppression. And that's definitely there. But I think even deeper than the violence and, and the oppression is the lying. And um, in 2014... Some researchers at Oxford University, they located the part of the brain that, uh, that we use to make plans and to, uh, to scheme. Um, and Discover Magazine had an article on it, and it said, um, it is a walnut-sized area of our brain that is responsible for decision-making with no equivalent in any animal brain. Researchers believe that this uh, lateral frontal pole, the lateral frontal pole, this might be responsible for humans having the upper hand among animals. And it's an interesting phrase that we would have the upper hand among animals because you, 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 you think, well, what, what is our, our upper hand about what? You know, what do we do that the animals don't do? And, you know, one thing is we have the upper hand in conceiving and uttering lies from the heart, as he says in verse 13. Um, Probably the only animal that fabricates stories about what's really going on and covers up their sins and hatches uh, selfish plots. We're the only animal that does that because we have this uh, lateral frontal pole, walnut-sized part of our brain that does these things, that makes these decisions, that, uh, that weaves these webs I love the phrase um, that maybe we get from verse 5. I don't know. But the, the phrase, a hat, to hatch a plot. You know, the idea of like a hatching a, a, a little chick. Um, they hatch, not little cute chickens, but they hatch adder's eggs. An adder is a viper. So Isaiah is saying that the people of God uh, are scheming these things that are like a, a deadly, uh, like a cobra or an asp that strikes out. You know, it coils up in a dark corner and then strikes. And um, that's what the people are doing in Isaiah's day in Israel. They're hatching these uh, serpentine, poisonous plots. And, you know, I think we all, we know that we all do this. Um, we see something we want and we start to scheme about how we're going to get it. Even if it means doing things we don't really want to do or didn't plan to do. 
You know, if, just a small example, if I find out um, that there's a, a big sporting event, like a Wake football game, that is on the same day as a scheduled presbytery meeting that had been scheduled a year earlier, I will begin to, you know, uh, to hatch a plot by which I get to that, meet, the, that game and out of that meeting um, one way or another, even if it means kind of shading the truth at times. And then we all do this. You know, we have an obligation. We find out about a better obligation, and we start to hatch a plot, which might include shading the truth a little bit. Um, There's many other ways this is done. Of course, one famous example is King David. Uh, He's on top of his roof. Um, He looks down, and there's a beautiful woman uh, bathing on her roof. Her name is Bathsheba. And immediately, his, you know, the lateral frontal pole starts to whir and gear up and... um, he hatches a plot to get her into his bed and then also to cover up what he does. And he ends up killing um, the husband of Bathsheba, the innocent husband, who actually fights on, passionately on, on David's behalf as one of his great warriors. David has Uriah killed as part of his plot to cover up for his sexual sin with Bathsheba. And I just think it's worth taking a minute right now. Um, think about in your life... Um, where you uh, create these schemes and um, where you are tempted to come up with some kind of plot, something cunning. Um, you lo- you know, usually it's at, at night, you're on your bed, you're thinking uh, as you go to bed, some, you come up with something in your mind and you begin to weave this plan to get what you want to get. And the tendency is so strong in humans to do this that we have to create these things called justice systems, law courts and judges and lawyers and police, and we, we create these things to limit the corruption that, that humans naturally bring to the earth because of our scheming and our hatching of plots. And, of course, immediately the justice systems become part of the scheming, and so people will use the justice system and it will backfire, it will fail. And oftentimes, those who are more wealthy and have more power will use the system to um, actually hatch plots against those who have less power and have less wealth. And so Isaiah says in verse 4, which applies very much to our society today, no one enters lawsuits justly. No one goes to courts honestly. That would probably mean they're bribing the judges. Um, They rely on empty pleas. In other words, they have no case. They just make up this case. And then the judge votes on their behalf because they pay him off. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Some of you know the story of King Ahaz, uh, the king of Israel, a terrible king. He, He noticed that next door to his property, there was a beautiful vineyard. And thankfully, God had instituted a justice system in Israel such that the king could not just take that property. Now, in a lot of countries in the world, the king would have just said, I want that property, and he would just have it. But at least in Israel, there, was a law, there, was, there were laws that, that the king could not do that. And so uh, King Ahaz goes to the owner. His name is Naboth. And Ahaz goes to Naboth, and he says, I want your property. Uh, how much to, to, to buy your property? And probably gives him a low, low price and pressures him and pressures him until um, finally Naboth has to say, I'm not doing it. Uh, and he, he resists the king. And then um, what happens then is Ahaz goes back to, uh, to his bedroom with his queen, Jezebel, 
And knowing her character, he begins to mope and kind of pout and pace back and forth and complain and whine to his wife about how Naboth wouldn't give him this vineyard. And pretty soon, his ruthless, cunning wife, Jezebel, has hatched a plot. And all of a sudden, the city elders have trumped up charges against Naboth, and they take him out and they stone him. And then, of course, the next day, King Ahaz has his property. And this still happens um, in a lot of developing countries where uh, the, the international justice mission will often go in and have to prevent this kind of seizure of land uh, because the, the justicism is just completely scorned. And I'm sure that uh, Ahaz, as soon as he took that land, he immediately began to rewrite the story of what happened. And um, this is where his lateral frontal you know, lobe begins to really take off and, and think, how, now, how, what really happened right there? And, and then he tells himself, you know, I, I did make a very, very generous offer, way more generous than anyone would have ever made, and I was being really gracious to Naboth, and then he yelled at me. You know how we always come up with that? That's one of my favorite phrases when I'm kind of backtracking and creating a story, a new narrative. I'll say, well, you yelled at me. He, Why did you yell at me? And that usually means that... Uh, Someone kind of raised an eyebrow or something. You know, maybe he entered a slightly gruff tone of voice. He probably said that Naboth yelled at him. And I'm sure he thought, you know, I, I didn't really mean to tell Jezebel. Um, I can't believe she did that. She wrangled it out of me. And I would never have agreed to her scheme if I had anything to do with it. And then not only did he start to believe these things, but he probably had it written down. And um, it's amazing, actually, that... We even have the Bible story. That's one thing I love about the Bible. It's got these stories that are subversive to those who are in power. It's amazing we have this story. But, you know, scholars will call this sometimes revisionist history. So, you know, in the, in the 1950s, a, um, a textbook might have said that the, the American Indians uh, gladly sold their property to Thomas Jefferson um, when we took their land. Uh, or today, my son said that uh, in his textbook, uh, Christopher Columbus is nothing but like this... Uh, this guy who came and just massacred everyone that he saw. Again, different forms of revisionist history, but you know, we're always rewriting things to, to fit the, the way that we feel today. Verse 7 says, uh, their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Um, they weave the spider's web, which is a great way of describing what we do when we want to cover something up. We, we live in this spider's web of of kind of a lies and this tissue of fabrication. When someone offends us, we, we love to lick our wounds and tell other people about it. And every time we tell someone, uh, we, the narrative gets more and more skewed on our, on, to, to our favor and it makes them look worse and worse and us better and better. And usually, like I said, we begin to believe our own lies very, very quickly. We edit the script and usually um, her disrespect is exaggerated. And uh, my harsh words are very much minimized. And uh, we forget very important conversations that were had. And we, uh, we kind of edit out things that make us look bad. Um, and all this, verse 6, uh, Isaiah would say, is to serve as clothing to cover themselves. You know, it's bad enough that people do all these things. But what is, what is really terrifying is the way that people can begin to cover them up and, not, and, and begin to believe their own lies. At that point, there's no chance for repentance. 
Um, someone once sent me a long email thread of a conflict they were having with someone. This is not just one time. This has happened several times. So I get this email, and it's got their email, and then the other person's email, and like eight or nine of these things, okay, in this huge email thread. And so I go back and begin to read them. And um, with every email, I can see just the conflict is snowballing, you know. And um, the first one, uh, it's not too harsh. Um, it's, the tone is, is kind of ironic. And the second one, it gets a little bit more um, heated. The, the words become a, a little bit more violent and on and on. And I remember one of them said, now, obviously we're not on the same page here. And then begins to describe more about how they disagreed with the first person. And then the next person writes, you said in your last email we were not on the same page. I don't even think we're in the same universe. And then they describe the whole narrative as they see it. And this is what creates so many conflicts and makes them grow stronger and stronger and begins to bring other people into them. And I think 90% of conflicts would end if somebody would just get the story straight. But we can't. We can't. We just continue to believe these spider webs of lies. Verse 15, the truth is lacking. My favorite commentary on Isaiah, the commentator says, so long as we're ignorant of our sins, we're trying to explain them away or blame them on somebody else, we can have no real hope for change. It is only when we agree with God's assessment of our condition that God's curative powers may be released in us. And that begins to move into point two. So point one is really bad news, which is that not only do we lie, but we have a hard time noticing when we lie. But point two is that that God makes this covenant with his people where he says, I am going to come in, come hell or high water, and I'm going to to show you. Even if it means... To the point of me dying, I'm going to show you that you lie. I'm going to bring you truth. I'm going to bring truth into your life, even if it kills me. So that's that's point two. Our lies and now God's invasion of truth and light. So verse 21 is the key verse. This is my covenant, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth that will not depart from your mouth. So not only does he put them in there, but that we, we, can't, we cannot eject them as we would like to. So notice that spirit is part of the new covenant, and then word or truth or scripture is part of the new covenant. And the new covenant is described in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah here. It's, it's, it's what God is going to do after the exile is over. He's going to create a new covenant. And he will enter into his people in a new way, in a stronger way than ever. A relationship with them will be built that is stronger than ever. And it will be based on truth illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Um, Where distorted narratives are replaced with his own words. So instead of us saying, are you crazy? I cannot believe that you think that I said that. Instead of that kind of thing, we will say in the new covenant, we will say, I guess... I guess I can see it from your point of view. Actually, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not getting that quite right. And God actually has to inject his words into us to be able to see things that way. So I would say the church is not so much a place without liars and hypocrites. Of course, it, it is a place of liars and hypocrites. If you're not a liar, 
or a hypocrite, you're not welcomed here. But it's a place of repentant liars and hypocrites. A, a place where people who are liars and hypocrites come and say, that's me. Um, yes, that, you have identified me correctly. That's who I am. And I have spent 47 years on this earth, and the only place that I have consistently heard people say things like, I was wrong about what I said, or I think that my viewpoint was distorted, or I am so sorry. The only place I've ever heard that with any consistency is the church. Not that often, um, not as often as, as I would hope, uh, but I have heard it. And these are, this is a supernatural event, much more so than, uh, than a healing. You know, if I had a really bad um, case of the flu or something like that, and someone prayed and I was immediately healed, as soon as they prayed, that would be less miraculous than for me to say something like, I, I, I am seeing this completely incorrectly, and I'm so sorry. I realize that now. When God actually kind of spoon-feeds uh, his word into my mouth. Um, you know, whenever I, I say something like that to my wife Margie, whenever I apologize like that, truly, without any of the buts and the, and the, the exceptions, um, but a, a real apology, um, she is absolutely stunned. It's, it's like a miracle has happened. And she'll say, what? How did you see that? And what changed your mind? And what have you been reading that you came up with that? And... Um, I want to say I'm just that kind of guy. You know, I'm, just, I'm the type of guy that I'm a truth teller. But then she says, no, really, who have you been talking to? Like, where did you get that? And I think her point is this has got to come from outside of us because we are so blind to the fact that it's happening. So it's got, the source has got to be from the outside. Again, it's like a mom uh, that is putting the, the baby food in this little infant's, in her, her little infant's mouth. Where it kind of... God puts his word, he opens our mouth and he puts his word in our mouth and says, here, this is what you should say to her. This is how you should say this, because we can't do it. And verses 9 through 15 are this amazing confession. All the commentaries agree that it's amazing that Isaiah would make this confession. It's kind of like the antidote to verses 3 through 8. Uh, 9 through 15 are these words that are coming straight from God into the heart of Isaiah, because because Isaiah had this experience of God's holiness. He saw him high and lifted up on his throne. And, um, and then he realized that uh, he was unholy and uh, that he was a, a man of unclean lips. And he, he lived amongst the people of unclean lips. And so he could say things like this. This verse 10 is amazing where, again, Isaiah says, We, my people and I, we grope like the blind for the wall, trying to find the wall. And we grope like those who have no eyes. It's a particularly strong insight for him to say that I'm basically blind. I mean, how could somebody know they're blind unless somebody else tells them? If you're blind from birth, it's got to come from outside of you. It's got to be God's word telling you that you're not seeing this rightly because you're blind. Sometimes people use that expression, I need to get another pair of eyes on this. Um, which is basically saying I need a second opinion. I need, I need someone to show me something I can't see. And that's what God is giving here to Isaiah. And he offers it to us. And I would say that the Holy Spirit, the main thing the Holy Spirit does, it's like eyes in the back of our head showing us what's going on with us. When you kind of, kind of like you lift up and almost see yourself from above objectively, um, when the Spirit does that, that's, that's really, the, that's when you're encountering the divine. Uh, the, the supernatural world beyond the veil 
if the Holy Spirit has a job description, and I don't think he does, but if he had one, uh, at the top of the list uh, would not be uh, create fits of laughter or um, make people raise their hands or speak in tongues or heal them physically. Or... Now, those are not bad things, but the number one job description of the Holy Spirit is show them their sin and make them mourn for it. Uh, show them their sin, show them their cognitive distortions and how they twist things, and then make them yearn and mourn and grieve uh, for truth. In verse 11, we growl like bears. If you think about the, the sound, the depth of that sound, we moan like doves. We hope for justice. We hope for salvation. That's the Holy Spirit. And he's working through Isaiah to make him humble and teachable and contrite. It's kind of like the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they who mourn. Blessed are they who thirst for justice. This is what Isaiah is experiencing through the Holy Spirit empowering him. This is what God offers us as the new covenant people is the Holy Spirit with his word. And part of this is that it's very corporate. It's not just private and personal and individualistic, which is very countercultural. In verse 12, he says, Our transgressions are multiplied. Our sins testify against us. Our iniquities, our transgressions. So it's not just the Holy Spirit uh, convicts you of your own personal sin. That's part of it. That's probably the strongest part of it. But there's another part of it where the Holy Spirit also makes your heart break for the sins of, of ISIS and the sins of North Korea and the sins of America, the greed and the violence of our country, our treatment of women and minorities and the unborn and animals, uh, our hostility and our anger about our country. Someone told me this week that, our, that polls show that our nation is more divided now than at any time since the Civil War. And the hostility that, that, that people feel for each other, rather than joining in that, how about just mourning? And how about having your heart broken by the Holy Spirit and yearning for truth and justice and weeping for the sins of people like Stephen Paddock and, and Harvey Weinstein and Hugh Hefner and even, even our president, who many people just scorn and mock and laugh out. Uh, the Holy Spirit, if you're interacting with the Holy Spirit, that's not the way he's making you think about him. He's, he's making you grieve and mourn and uh, break your heart for the whole system that's going on right now in our country. The, uh, the psychologist David Burns, who a friend of mine told me about, and I listened to his podcast quite a bit, uh, David Burns says that to heal a broken relationship, you need to see three things. Number one, you've got to see your part in the conflict, and that's number one. That's the most important thing. Number two, you've got to see that you don't want to see your part in the conflict. And that's very important, too. You've got to see your part in the conflict. You've got to see that you don't want to see your part in the conflict. And number three, you need to see that you have power to change. And that you, you can do this. That if you're very rigorous with yourself, um, if you're empowered by God, you can do this. You can actually, you can actually see things clearly. And we've looked at the first two, but the, the third now... The power, where do you see the power in this passage to actually see clearly? Well, you see in verse 19, um, the New Living Translation says, uh, He will come like a raging flood 
tide driven by the breath of the Lord. And the breath of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. So the image is, this person is coming like a raging flood tide. Uh, Translate tsunami. Just this massive wall of water. This person is coming and being driven by the, the breath or the wind of the Holy Spirit to planet Earth. This human being that is driven by the, the spirit of holiness and truth like a raging flood. If you're a Christian uh, and you believe that the Holy Spirit is in you, then don't ever say that you can't repent. Because you can repent. Because the Holy Spirit is in you. And God came to Earth to give people power to repent. It says in verse 15, he wondered, he was shocked that there was no one to intercede. And so his own arm brought him salvation. His own arm. And whenever you see that phrase, uh, the arm of God in the Bible, the arm of the Lord, it always, it's, a, it's a reference to the right hand, especially to the bicep. It's a, it's, a, it's a warlike reference to a powerful soldier, a general, a warrior. Uh, it's all over the ancient Near East, this metaphor for the arm being uh, a massive, powerful warrior. And here God has brought his own salvation with his own arm. He's invading the world uh, with truth. Not with violence, but with, with light. Invasion of light. And in verse 17 it describes him putting on the armor. Uh, which is probably where Paul gets the armor of God in, um, in Ephesians. Verse 17, he, God put on righteousness as a breastplate. God put on a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he put on zeal as a cloak. Now, if you notice those things that he's putting on, uh, there's, there are no weapons there. There's no sword. He didn't put on a sword. He didn't pick up a spear. He didn't bring any arrows with him because he didn't come here. Uh, to slaughter and to slay people and to kill people. He came here knowing that he was going to be uh, attacked, slaughtered, and slain. Uh, Herod tried to kill him when he was born, newborn. King Herod, when Jesus came, when God came and put on all this armor uh, to bring truth, uh, Herod, King Herod tried to have him killed as a baby. His own, his home church, his sending church, as they called him, his, his own home church tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill him when he gave his first sermon, his family tried to lock him up and uh, put him away. His, uh, his religious leaders, the Pharisees, wanted him dead immediately because he was showing them the truth. And then the Roman Empire finally did the job and they crucified him because he came and told the truth. There's a famous story called the Valley of the Blind where there's this um, hidden valley in the high mountains and this traveler discovers this valley. And in this beautiful valley live people who have been blind for generations and generations. So the traveler comes and begins to tell them about the beautiful mountains and the trees and the sky. And um, he's telling them, you know, you're missing all this beauty and so much color you've never seen. And instead of listening to him uh, and rejoicing, they begin to get mad. And the more he tells them, the more they get angry. And finally, they kill, they kill him because he's so annoying to them. And I think that's a great picture of what Jesus did. Uh, Coming to earth and um, letting people attack him, knowing he would be, as he told the truth about the glories of God and the kingdom and his Father and the Holy Spirit and telling us about who we are. The more he did it, the more we attacked, the more we hated. 
to the point where finally uh, he was killed. And so, in a sense, you could say that this meal we're about to partake in, um, this meal is the extent to which God would go, the lengths to which God would go, to show you uh, what you're like and what he's like, and, and how much hypocrisy and lies play a part in your life, and, then, and yet how much he loves you nonetheless. It doesn't in any way reduce his love. It just makes him more committed to coming and showing you the truth. And so on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup.